Amen. Can we just give the Lord a hand? We're glad that you're with us this morning uh, here on the Wills Point campus. We want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood uh, here at the same moment and uh, those that are uh, checking us out online. Today, we're beginning a new series called Don't Get Scrooged. And I know that none of you in here uh, are ever Scrooges when it comes to Christmas, uh, but there are some people that struggle with that. And uh, Kelly and I were at a concert last night, and there were all the sights and the sounds of Christmas. We had a tree lighting that started around 6 o'clock, and then after that, you had carols, and you had um, worship and singing, and it was awesome. It was just an incredible night. And then uh, as I'm drinking my cup of coffee, uh, I, something hits me, and I'm like, you know what? Not everybody enjoys this type of thing. Not everybody loves moments like this. And when you start thinking about Christmas, I think there's a lot of us uh, that we remember the sights, the sounds, the smells, the nostalgic feeling that Christmas brings. Some of us, uh, we try to recreate those things that we remember. And we always dream to have another Christmas like the one we used to have. Uh, But for a lot of us, uh, we start thinking about Christmas and man, it's just not all that enjoyable. I mean, for a variety of reasons. Number one, when you have Christmas, it means Christmas shopping. And Christmas shopping in this day and age, if you're not on Amazon, means that you have to travel into the place where there's bumper-to-bumper traffic, there's crazy people. Anybody know a crazy person when it comes to shopping? Yes, go ahead, raise your hand. If you didn't raise your hand, it means you're probably the crazy person we're talking about. Uh, so everybody knows, like, you know, it can be challenging. I mean, Christmas means uh, also endless Christmas music. And, and let's just be honest, not all Christmas music is the same. Not all of it's good, uh, although there are lots of great Christmas songs. But for some of us, all we hear is just annoying Christmas tunes. Uh, for a lot of us in here, we see that person in our office and we think they're equally as annoying as the music. And the reason why is because they started it in September. And, and so you like you got all of this different stuff. And so you think about Christmas and you think about endless joy and carols and all those things. And you're like, that's just not me. And so like, just let's get past the shopping. Let's get past all of that. And let's just have this day and let's do our, do our thing. For some of us, we struggle with Christmas because all it is is a bunch of wants. And we hear it from our kids. I want, I want, I want, I want. And for some of you, that want list has been going on since the middle of July in which you have been telling your kids, hey, just save that for Christmas. Yeah, we'll do that for Christmas. And so it's just a lot of different things. But some of us in here, we don't like Christmas because it means family drama. Can I get an amen? Yes. Uh, For some of us, it means that we're going to have a fight in our marriage because of where we're going this Christmas. And we can't decide, are we going to your crazy mom's or are we going to my crazy mom's house? And I said that because my mom is not in this service, right? Um, So like you're just trying to decide, like, where do we go? And so it brings up drama. You're you're talking about that one person is going to be there with you this Christmas, and and your nerves are already getting a little bit sketchy because of it. And so there's just there's there's this drama that comes with Christmas. And for some of us in here, it's not it's not music, it's not drama, but for a lot of us in here though, you go, no, it's none of those things. It's that I feel like I'm gonna be lonely this Christmas. You go, when everybody else is having dinner and they're opening presents and when they're going to the Christmas Eve Eve service together, uh, it's just me. And, and there's no one to open gifts with and there's no one to have dinner with. And, and for me, it's the loneliest day in the world. Uh, and so it just reminds you of hurts. For some of us, it's broken relationships. It's just Christmas is not the same thing for every one of us. 
And we oftentimes forget that, but there's a reminder called the Christmas Carol. If you remember the Christmas Carol, it's, a, uh, it's been made famous. Obviously, you're not even sure which version is the right version anymore. But originally, uh, you had a guy named Charles Dickens, and he wrote a novella. A novella was, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a short story because it was too long to be a short story, and it wasn't a novel because it was too short to be a novel. And so what it was was this story about a guy named Ebenezer Scrooge. And uh, Scrooge was... A guy who a lot of us give a bad rap to, but I'll tell you, he was a man that was just shaped by his past a past that was very hurtful for him. And, and you see that revealed in, in the narrative uh, when it was a, originally became forth a play in 1843 and then throughout the years it's transitioned a little bit. But you see these different spirits of Christmas and one of them was the spirit of Christmas past. And when you begin to look closely at the spirit uh, of Christmas past, it, it has the appearance of kind of a candle. It's got a light and which Ebenezer tries to put out at one point in the narrative. And uh, this 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 creature, which you can't tell whether or not it's a male or a female in the original, oftentimes in, in plays it would be um, played by a, a woman, oftentimes. Uh, it, was, it was there, and it would begin to reveal things to Ebenezer Scrooge. And so in the original manuscript, a, a few of the things that it revealed was, one was about his days in boarding school, a day in which all of his friends would go home for Christmas, and he was there left tending to his books. He was alone. He was uh, becoming bitter, even from a young age at boarding school. Uh, there was a one point in the narrative, too, at Christmas past, uh, he's traveling through London and sees his dear sister in which he, lo- uh, he loved, and, um, but she was trying to convince her dad to let him come home, and, and there was this, this scene that has it played out. Uh, you would see in one part of the Christmas past narrative this, uh, this woman named Belle, which was his, his fiance, and which broke off the relationship at one point because he was pursuing wealth, and that was money was being too much of a priority in his life. And then later on, Christmas past would travel all the way to Belle's future marriage. And Ebenezer would see this. And, and, and so you got this Christmas past and it brings up different feelings, different emotions for this guy named Ebenezer Scrooge. And when we start thinking about Christmas for us, oftentimes it does the same. Uh, we, we have these different feelings that we think are nostalgic. And for some of us, they're hurtful. For some of us, it brings up anxiousness and loneliness and so many different things. But I guess the question is this, is what if I could tell you that as we begin to think about not being Scrooge, that there is hope for many of us in here that even have feelings of anxiousness around Christmas. And I'll tell you, I think if we're putting all of our onus on the things that make us feel nostalgic, for instance, the Christmas trees, and if we're judging about when they go up compared to our friends and our family, okay, then there's a lot of us that we, we just can't get into the spirit, right? Because how many of you have not put up your, no, hold on, I'm sorry. How many of you have put up your Christmas tree? Go ahead, you're okay. So, and then there's a handful of us that like, we're just not on our game yet. And that's us, that's me, like, okay. Um, and so you might go, man, you're such a Scrooge, right? But if we can get past Christmas trees and lights and sounds and smells, and we can begin to look, at a real Christmas past and began to see how it would shape the Christmas in which we believe for the present and the future, I think it can be a game changer for us this year. And I'm, I'm telling you that I, I want to enjoy all the sights and the sounds and smells of Christmas. I remember when I was about 10 years old, I got a new set of drums. I can remember they were shiny, bright, blue rimmed, uh, and I banged on those things for days. And I'm sure my parents thought, this is the worst mistake we have ever made. 
And I'll tell you, it didn't ever help my drum playing throughout the years or anything, but I remember that Christmas. I also remember a Christmas where um, I asked for an Oakland Raiders helmet, and I got a Seattle Seahawks helmet instead. (laughs) And you want to talk about an epic fail, okay? Because back in the day, the Seattle Seahawks were terrible, okay? Um, But Christmas brings up so many different things. But let me just say this. The way I see Christmas now is way different than I saw it when I was 10. And it's the one thing that I, I think we struggle to portray to those that are following us, to our kids. Christmas is about a list of wants, and it's about us trying to redirect our kids. And the question is, what are we trying to redirect them to? Are, are we trying to re, re, redirect them to fictitious characters, or are we trying to redirect them to something that is real and reliable and trustworthy? And today, I want to just give you a handful of real, reliable, trustworthy things that I think can bring us hope regardless of what we believe about this season. Because I get it. There's some of you in here, you're like, no, I love Christmas. I hate shopping. I love Christmas. I hate the family drama. I love Christmas. And if we could just finally get it right about Christ, then Christmas would be what it is. And you hate Christmas because it's never about Christ. I get that. But let's just talk through what Christ really means for Christmas. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to just show you six things that I think are very reliable about the birth of Christ. And then I want to show you about another um, 15 or so things that are reliable about just who Christ was in his, his life and his death. And so I'm going to give you some things that were said of him long ago in Christmas past that should shape what we believe about this season, okay? So I want you to stick with me. Before I do that, real quickly, I realize there's a handful of people here that you're visiting Stone Point for the very first time, and we're glad you're here. Uh, There's some of you that are in here, and you've been here for a while, but you go, you know what, I really am skeptical about the Bible, and, and you're about to tell me about 21 or 22 things that you believe about Christmas past, but how in the world do we believe that they should even be true? And so let me just help you uh, understand real quickly what the Bible is. The Bible is not one inspired book. The Bible is one inspired collection of 66 books. And so it's, the Bible comes from the word Biblia, which literally means books. There's 66 of them. They're broken down into two sections. You've got the Old Testament. The Old Testament is comprised of 39 different books. You've got 17 of them, which are grouped together historically. You've got five of them grouped together poetically. And then you've got 17 grouped together uh, prophetically, meaning there were guys talking about things that would happen in the future. And so those 39 books shape what we believe true to, uh, about Jesus and the Christ child. Well, the New Testament talks about Jesus. You've got the Gospels, and then you've got the book of Acts, which tells about the early church, and then you've got all these different letters written from different men to either people or to churches in the New Testament. There's 29 or 27 New Testament books. And so you've got 39, 27, makes 66. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years, over four different authors on three different continents in three different languages. So if you can imagine the compilation of these 66 different books by all these different people, you go, how in the world did that happen? For instance, like maybe you're here and you're a little bit skeptical about the Bible. Let me just ask you a quick question. If I were to say, hey, I want to take four different people in here and I want you to go and I want you to just write about the validity of life and about what you think life is like. And we were to take all 40 different compilations, bring them back together and try to bring about some sort of unity. It would be almost ridiculous. And here's what's crazy. Most of the 40 people that would write would know each other, live in the same place and speak the same language. Can you imagine people who never met each other over a period of 1,500 years, didn't even speak the same language, live on the same continent? And you've got the Bible. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. And then you've got Revelation 22 and Jesus saying, behold, I'm coming again. 
Now, there's this preservation, this unity that is really incredible throughout our Bible. The fact that we still have a Bible that we think is reliable today is incredible because the manuscript is literally over 3,000 years old when you start looking at the original language in the text. What's also incredible is, is that in the 1940s, there became some data that I think proves everything for me. Okay, And so listen, if you start looking at the Bible, it's easy to say, yeah, I get it, but it's just a bunch of stories, a bunch of fables. How do we know it's reliable? But then there was this discovery, and it was in the Qumran community just west of uh, the uh, Dead Sea. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And here, pay attention, lean in with me. In the 1940s, they discovered thousands upon thousands of fragments of different articles, mostly made of like animal skin and then uh, penned in ink. And that was preserved text that had been preserved for well over 2,000 years. And then they began to look closely at these articles and all of these different fragments. And here's what they identified. They identified that among the 10,000 plus fragments of scripture, some in whole parts, many others in pieces, that, that they had landed, that they had many historical texts, but they also had all of the Old Testament in which we believe is canonized today. So that means out of the 39 books, they had all but one, and that's the book of Esther, and we've never got our hands on it. But 38 out of the 39 books were found in the Qumran community in the 1940s by two Bedouin shepherds who were cousins. And when they found that, they didn't even know what they had, but here's what they had. They had articles that dated right now in a modest way at least 150, and most would say up to 350 years AD, okay? Or I'm sorry, BC. Uh, so BC meaning before Christ. So 150 to 350 years BC before Christ. So that means the articles in which they have, which line up over our text today in very similar fashion, were preceding Christ, so it means that whatever was written, even if you take your copy off the table, means there was a copy similar before Jesus ever came on the scene. And so everything I'm going to show you today is contained in what you call the Dead Sea Scrolls. And not only are they contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we also have a reliable copy, I believe, in our Bible. Why? Because they predate this guy named Jesus. And if they predate this guy named Jesus, it means that we should pay close attention to it. Why? Because it's very rare that you can get your hands on something reliable, know who the author is, know the dating, and then also it tell of someone coming beforehand. Let me give you an example. Um, it was July 10th of 2009, and my wife walks in the door, and I'm sure I was doing what every good future father would do. I was playing video games. You know, I was like 28. I wasn't living in my mom's home, so I was all good, right? And then my wife walks in, and she goes, Brandon, I'm pregnant. We're going to have a baby. And I'm sure I hit pause or something on my video game. I don't even know. I, I, I just like, do what? What? I'm like, you're joking me. And she's like, I would not joke about something like this, Brandon. And I'm like, I got it. And so nine months, I'm like, I have to grow up. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like this time to start figuring this out. I have nine months of preparation and planning. I start reading books on being a dad. Um, I start trying to figure things out. We start getting our finances in order. I remember even the last three weeks of preparation, all the nesting that happens, the painting, the putting the bed together, all the things that first-time parents do for their firstborn child. <laughs> We don't do any of that stuff for the second or third or fourth. But that first one, we're ready. Well, here's the deal. Why are we not ready when you've got these announcements that have been happening in the scriptures 
some of which are 1,400 years old, and most of which are anywhere from 550 to 750 years old. Let me just show you a handful of them. One of the first announcements that was ever made was to a guy named Abraham. Abraham is what's considered the father of the nation of Israel. And in Genesis, uh, you're going to see in Genesis chapter 12 that God would promise that the nation of Israel would be blessed and that other nations would be blessed. But in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham's going to take his son Isaac on the mountain. He's going to prepare to sacrifice him, which many of us have a problem with because you're like, I can't trust in a God who would sacrifice his, uh, you know, make a father sacrifice his son. But I'm like, that's the whole point of your Bible anyway, a father who would sacrifice his son. And, and I have a theory, too, that as he takes his son up there, God's going to provide a ram in the thicket. But here's the deal. God was never going to allow this man to kill his son. And here's why. Because Isaac was a little sinful boy. And you can't sacrifice a sinful boy for anything. Why? Because there would be nothing paid for because of a sinner. And so here it is. He wanted to see his obedience. And in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18, I went to see what God says about Abraham's obedience but the promise that is declared about a future Christmas. It says in verse 15 of Genesis 22, and I'll put it for you up on the screen. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as to the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and I will and of your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So what he says to Abraham, he goes, because you've obeyed me, I'm going to fulfill my end of the promise, and all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your seed, through the descendant of Abraham. And so he's going, look, I'm going to bring about someone, a Messiah for the nation of Israel and the whole world, and he's going to come through the lineage of Abraham, and he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, it says, as you're talking about, God's talking about the, uh, the tribes of, of Israel, he, he comes to this tribe of Judah, and this is what he says, the scepter or the rod of Judah will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him, meaning the Savior or the Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And the question is, okay, so you're telling me that God's promise that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Israel and ultimately through a person that's called the Messiah that's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Yes, the Bible also says it's not just going to come from this guy named Abraham, but it's going to come from the lineage of Isaac and ultimately to Jacob all the way down. And then things are even going to be backtracked all the way to this guy named Shem, which was Noah's son. And you're going to see this lineage. And as it comes forth, you're going to see the amazing predictability of what God does. And in Matthew chapter 1, you get this narrative from Matthew, one of the disciples, and, and he starts with a genealogy record. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever started the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, you probably put it down by the end of about 15 minutes because you started the genealogy record. But here, in verse 1 of Matthew, look what the genealogy record says. It says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, the Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Do you see it right there? Look at all the prophecies fulfilled right there. 
It looks like just two, that, that you would see Jesus come from the father of, as the father Abraham, but ultimately of Judah. No, he comes from that entire line all the way to the city of David, from the Davidic throne, which was promised to David as well, all the way to be the Christ child in Jerusalem, the seed of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes to the church of Galatia, and, and this is what he says. He says, now the promise were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but it was referring to one and to your offspring, and the offspring is Christ. Christ is the offspring. And so when he's talking back in the day, he was very careful when he was talking to Abraham. He didn't say, hey, Abraham, and you're gonna bless all the nations through all your offsprings. He goes, no, we're gonna bless the nations because of one person who is Christ, the child. You go, well, okay, I get it, Christ the child, but where is he going to come from? Well, God says he's going to come in a spectacular way, in a supernatural way. He's going to be born of a virgin. Matter of fact, Isaiah the prophet, who prophesied many things uh, over the course of his book, uh, about 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah would write one thing in chapter 7, verse 14, that I think is really important, and this is what he would say. Therefore, the Lord himself, speaking of Jesus, or, or the Lord God would give you a sign, speaking of Jesus, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Now you look at that and you go, okay, so you're telling me that Isaiah the prophet wrote this 700 years, and he spoke clearly about one who would come as the offspring of Abraham to all the nations, and he would be called Emmanuel? And the answer is yes. Matter of fact, you see the fulfillment of that in Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. I'm just going to read you a handful of verses, 21 through 23, but look what it says. It says, she will bear a son, meaning Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, pointing back to Abraham and the blessing to the nations. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Mary and Joseph call this baby lying in a manger, Emmanuel, God with us. He's born supernaturally of the spirit and the virgin birth. And you go, okay, you, so you're going to talk about the virgin birth real quick. Yes, listen, the virgin birth is really important for two reasons. Lean in with me, okay, especially you in Edgewood. Here's why. Number one, I have never seen a virgin birth. Have you? And so if we, if we have a claim to a virgin birth, we probably should pay attention to it. And then you go, okay, I get it. If there was a virgin birth, which seems almost ridiculous, the question is, is why would God even provide a virgin birth anyway? And here's reason two. Number one, if God's going to provide a virgin birth, you need to know that God could never reveal himself in flesh to us through conception of a natural source. Because Jesus would have been flesh. And if Jesus is flesh, like you and me, it means that he's a sinner the very moment he's conceived. So what I'm saying is, is the little child that's growing up inside of you as a mom right now in this moment, if you're pregnant, is already a sinner. You're like, no, come on. And he hadn't even had a chance to hit the ground. And you're calling him a sinner. I didn't call him a sinner. The scripture does. Romans chapter five, we are all sinners. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Why? Because we're born of the seed of Adam. 
Jesus is the second Adam. He couldn't be born of natural flesh or he's a sinner just like you and I. So he has to be born supernaturally of the spirit. Why? Because if he's a sinner like you and I, born in flesh, he can't save anyone from his sins. And so Jesus is born supernaturally, conceived by the spirit in a supernatural way so that he could come and be God in the flesh. And so here it is, this baby born of a a virgin lying in a manger is God in the flesh. Now think about that for just a second. Mary looking onto the face of God. Could you imagine what that must have been like? Could you imagine what it would be like to see God in flesh? You remember Moses in Exodus chapter 33? God's about to depart the law of God, the Ten Commandments to him on Sinai. And he goes, God, can I just see your face? And God goes, no, you can't see my face. And he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by. And the question is, is why couldn't? Because God, if we were to see him face to face, would consume us with his holiness. But God says, one day you're going to see me and you'll be able to touch me and you'll see a tangible example of my perfection as a God makes himself known to humanity in a way you could see the tangible witness of the creator, not because of a created being, because Jesus was never created. He's always been, always was, and always will be. But he makes himself known as a virgin coming to man to reveal himself in his holiness. And you go, okay, that's cool. And then he goes, but listen, let me tell you where you should look. And so in Micah, this prophet who prophesies um, also 700 plus years before Christ, he tells you where you should look. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, look what the prophet Micah says. But you, O Bethlehem, Apathra, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He says there is going to be one who is the ancient of days who is going to reveal himself. And you should look for him, not just as a baby in swaddling clothes, not just from a virgin named Mary, but you should also look for him in the city of David, the town of Bethlehem. Now, I didn't go into it in the first service, but let me just share real quickly why that's awesome. Is because Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem. They were from a town called Nazareth. And the only reason that they're even in Bethlehem is because the governor in that day declared that there should be a census taken. And so they have to leave their little hometown of Nazareth and the comfort of their amenities, and they travel to a town called Bethlehem. And when they get there, she conceives the son, which further fulfills a prophecy. And guess what? All the world takes notice. Why? Because there it is. In the city of Bethlehem, there is a child being born. Matthew tells you this in his narrative. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Hey, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And so here it is in Bethlehem, this child who is the king of kings, the one worthy of worship, and he's lying in a manger. And not only that, but did you just catch what... Matthew said, he goes, and then men of the east came. They came bearing gifts. Well, get this, that's a prophecy too. Psalm 72.10 and Isaiah 60 verse 6 tell about men of the east coming from places like Sheba to present the Messiah with gifts. Now, these would be prophecies that are well over 700 years as well. Psalm 72.10, look at this. It says, may the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute, meaning the Messiah. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. 
Isaiah, the prophet, verse uh, 6 of chapter 6, he says, The multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and the Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. Like, you heard that song, right? Bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. We three kings of Orient are. You know who the Orient are? It's the men of East. You know the men of the East? They would bring gifts. In Matthew chapter 2, you just saw it. It says, In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men came from the East to Jerusalem. The men of Sheba showed up as Isaiah said they would. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty dang cool. In verse 10, it says that later on in that same passage of Matthew chapter 2, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. Why? Because they're astronomers, and they've never seen a supernatural figure like that star in the sky. And it wasn't revealed to every man. It was just revealed to these astrologers who would come from the east. And why were they coming to the east? Because Isaiah said they would come from the east. And if Isaiah said as the prophet, then guess what? It had to become true. And as they come, they come bearing gifts. And verse 11 says, And go into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. That's incredible. Why? Because they're bringing gifts to the one who is Jesus, the one who always was always is, and always will be the Son of God. He, he is the same essence of God. He is God made manifest to humanity. In our sin problem, we have a perfect substitute. He lays in a manger. He's obedient all of his life, even unto his death. He is the Son of God. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 12 um, the psalmist would say that there is one who is coming, and there's a Messiah who's worthy of our worship. Now catch what it says about him. It says, I will tell you of the decree. And the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Begotten, that word there uh, in, in the Hebrew would be the same word that you would render in the Greek, which would simply mean the begotten, the homa saw, the same stuff as God. You look at my son, he's eight, uh, Brady. You look at him, you're like, oh, that is his daddy's son all over, right? He does the same stuff as I do. He cracks the same jokes, even though they're not any good. He does all of that. And my, my wife, Kelly, always goes, that is your son all over. And I'm like, you better believe that's my son. <laughs> Why? Because he's essence of me. Jesus, the essence of God, the begotten. Verse 8 of Psalm 2 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces of a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Here's the warning. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with his trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And here's what the psalmist is saying. He's going, listen, there is one who you're going to find in Bethlehem. He's going to be in the city of David. He's going to come from the line of David. He's going to come from Abraham. He is going to be a blessing to all the nations. And when you you see him, you need to know he is a king. And you need to know that what you do with him really matters. And so, hey, be warned, all you kings of the earth, because you're going to see this baby. He's going to be meek and mild. He's going to be peaceable. And when you look at him, you're going to have a choice to make. Is he really the son of God? Is he the, the essence of God made flesh, manifest to sinners like you and I? And if he is, it says, kiss the child. And if he's not then why would you kiss him? Because all you'll do is betray the very essence of a guy named Judah who kissed the child. And so what God says is he goes, look, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting you to render your heart to him. And here's why it's important that 
people of the earth would render our hearts to this baby is because we either get to see him as a peaceable, young, meek baby in which none of us are afraid of, and we get to draw near to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth, or we get to see him as the rightful king and the Messiah and the heir of the throne that he is, in which is also referred to as the line of the tribe of Judah, and we get to see him either in in the presence of a, of a young baby lying in the manger in the city of David that brings peace to all who would trust in him, or we get to see him as a king and which will cast us away because we never bowed our hearts to him. And the psalmist says, you need to pay careful attention to what you do with him. That's why the kings would ultimately bring gifts. It's why they would bow down. It's the representation is they recognized who God was. It's the same recognition that God would give to Jesus himself uh, in, at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 7. It says, when Jesus baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and, and the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from the heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The exact same phrase is used again at the transfiguration. It's an incredible picture of God recognizing who, who his son is. You might remember a famous verse in Matthew chapter, or John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only. The best rendering of that text is he gave his only begotten son, the one who always was, always is, and always will be for us. That if you'll believe in him, that you would not perish, but you have eternal life. That's the goal, the son of God, laying in a manger in the city of David, the town of Bethlehem, men of the east come from afar to recognize his holiness. Pretty crazy. And then he goes, and hey, let me just add one more person to the story, this guy named John, in which you see the story of Elizabeth. Elizabeth leaps uh, at the recognition of this child in her womb. Elizabeth and Mary are cousins, which makes John the Baptist, this guy who's going to be born, cousins as well. The crazy thing is, is John the Baptist is not Jesus, but it's prophesied about John the Baptist coming at the same time as Jesus. And so you see, as Isaiah mentions in verse 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, 450 years before Jesus would do the same thing. He would say, hey, there is one who is coming that's going to prepare the way of the Lord. And then you see the fulfillment of that in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 3. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, it says this, look at it. Is written that Isaiah the prophet said, Behold, I send my messenger before your face to prepare your way, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. And then he quotes the account uh, of Isaiah 40, verse 3 Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then John appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming the baptism and repentance, the forgiveness of sins. In John chapter 1, verse 29, you see the picture of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, Hey, behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this talking about the Christ child. And here's the deal. The Christ child is really important. But what's important was, is could you imagine watching this child grow up? Could you imagine being Mary and never seeing a single ounce of disobedience? Could you imagine as a parent, could you imagine that each day that passed, the more mesmerized you came, became with his, his countenance? Could you imagine by the time that he was nine, he was more interested in the synagogue than anything else of playing with his friends? 
Could you imagine the learning that he, that he was always perfectly obedient and compliant with those around him? Could you imagine that the intrigue that must have been happening with Mary and Joseph and, and all those around him as they watched this little boy and he grows up to be this Messiah and then all of a sudden you see all of these other prophecies from old unleashed. And I'm just gonna run down the list. And so I encourage you to grab your phone and start snapping shots or write it down, or we'll stick it out online for you this week. But I want you to just see a handful of other things. By the time that Jesus' ministry is fulfilled, he's going to go to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, there's a handful of things that are going to happen in a very short window. In about a week's time, and then even further on in a 24-hour period of time, you're going to see literally dozens of prophecies come true. One of which would be... uh, spoke about in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that he would enter on the foal of a donkey, that he would ride in Jerusalem riding a donkey, and that people would proclaim him as king. And you see that account would come true in Matthew chapter 21. That he would be betrayed by a friend, a prophecy from Psalm 41 fulfilled in Matthew chapter 10 and John chapter 13. That he would be betrayed by a meager 30 pieces of silver by a friend. You would see that prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, and fulfilled in Matthew 26. That the money that was, um, was used to, to sell Jesus over would ultimately be used to purchase potter's field. Zechariah eleven thirteen, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. That he would be accused falsely by witnesses, although he had never done anything wrong. Psalm 35, 11, prophesied there, fulfilled later in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 and 60. That he was hated without just cause prophesied in Psalm 69, fulfilled in John 15, that he would be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53, that he would be spit upon, Isaiah 50, mocked, Psalm 22, stared upon, Psalm 22, all fulfilled in the account of Matthew or John. That he would be pierced in his side, Zechariah 12, 10, fulfilled in John chapter 19 as he's hanging on the cross. And then later, that he would die between two thieves and criminals, criminals, and that he would be buried with the wealthy. Prophecy that Isaiah mentioned 700 plus years as he wrote Isaiah 53. Fulfilled both in the accounts of Matthew and the historian Luke. He would rise from the dead, Isaiah 53.10, noted um, also in Psalm 16, fulfilled in Matthew 28 as the earth shook. Um, he, would, he would die and then ultimately he would raise from the dead. That's crazy. I've given you right there 20 plus prophecies that we would say came true through the reliability of the scripture. But let me explain something real quickly. You're like, okay, that's cool. That's awesome. But I'm, I'm not sure I'm all in on this. Well, let me help you be all in real quickly. There's a guy named um, Peter Stoner. He, he began to do calculations for each of the prophecies, many others than I've mentioned here. And he would begin to do um, scientific and mathematical equations, and he would determine that this particular prophecy might be 1 in 1,000, and this one might be 1 in 3,000, and then he would have one that might be 1 in 1,000, that it would occur in any one man at that particular point in time in the Bible. And then he landed and had lots of different people try to check his work. He landed that if you were to take any specific eight prophecies that would be fulfilled in any man on the planet, and you could write those prophecies, just let's just say within 50 years of that person's birth and death, that there would be an astronomical figure that would almost be unprecedented. 
And so here it is, you've got all these prophecies that have been written about Jesus from 458 uh, AD, or BC all the way to, to literally 1500 and even more BC. You got all of them, but let's take eight of them. And he says the likelihood of eight being fulfilled in one man would be like taking a silver dollar and coloring it black on both sides. And as you cover that silver dollar and take it black, back, you take it and any of us would just chunk it as far as we could anywhere in the state of Texas that you would like. Just figure out where you want to stick that thing and chunk it as far out into the distance. And then I want you to take somebody and you would blindfold them and you would take them to the very hub of Dallas-Fort Worth in the center of Metroplex. You would blindfold them, you'd spin them around like you're playing pin the tail on the donkey and then you would unleash them. And you would say, now listen, you've got the entire state of Texas and there are silver dollars two feet deep. And now good luck finding that one coin colored black. That's one and 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros. One and one and 10 to the 17th power of the likelihood of eight prophecies coming true of one man. And we see today that there were 21 that were spoken about by the prophets of old about the ancient of days that have already come true. I don't know about you, but that helps me as I start thinking about being a Scrooge. And here's why, because I know that no matter what I face this Christmas, that I have hope. Like there's some of you in here, you're like, I'm not looking forward to Christmas because I'm gonna be alone. No, 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 you're not alone. Because there's a God who says, I will never leave nor forsake you. There is a God who says, cast your cares upon me when you're weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. There is a God who says, do not be afraid. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. You are not alone. No, you may not have the Christmas that brings nostalgic feelings like you would hope, but you're not alone. There is a Savior that has been born to us this day in the city of David. Find him, celebrate him, worship him. May you allow your eyes to be drawn to his perfections. Take your eyes off of your circumstances and lift them up to the king who holds your circumstances. He is worthy of your affection. He is the light of the world. And so when you string lights around your house, don't do it to compare it to your neighbor. Do it because you say, I want this to be a reflection of the hope that I have of the glory to come. As you put out that nativity scene, don't forget to talk about every single person with your children. Hey, remind them of those kings of Sheba that came from distant places to worship the king. When you think about the gifts, hey, don't forget to think about the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, which hold no value to the one gift that God really brought. Friends, do not forget that Christmas past shapes Christmas present and our Christmas future. Don't get caught up in family drama, but instead be reconciled to God and reconcile your friends at the same time reconcile that old bitter relationship that you have. Seek to aim and please God in the midst of our Christmas now. I can't wait to talk about Christmas now next week. I hope you'll come because I think for so many of us, we already have regrets about this Christmas. You're like, I've already gotten my bill from Black Friday and it's only been nine days. 
I spent too much. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Listen, it's not too late. You're like, you want me to take it all back? I guess if the Lord leads you to that, whatever, right? It's not too late to allow Christmas past to shape the Christmas we have this present year. And so may we ask God to direct us and give us wisdom and shape the next 30 days that we'll have. Why? Because Advent is here. We're celebrating light and joy and hope and the spirit of Christmas. And may it not be shaped by our memories, but the memory of the real Christmas past that made himself known to us through the prophets of old. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, affection for you, God. I pray that we would think about the forerunner named John, the one who came through the wilderness to repair the way of the Lord, who points to Jesus, the Son of God, and says, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I pray that we would see your son lying in a manger as the Lamb who was slain. That we would come to him as he lays there and that we would appropriately come to him bearing our lives in service and that we would bow down to the very baby who changes all of history. And I pray that it would take even the most stubborn of hearts in this room and begin to shape them break them, and ultimately bend them towards you and your glory. God, help us to see the prophets of the old of what they said and about what they meant. And I pray for even the skeptic in here that they would search a quest to disprove the authority of the scriptures and that they would begin with the Christ child in Bethlehem. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this to begin to move us forward. Help us to know we're not alone, that every song we sing can bring you glory. Every conversation and cup of coffee can ultimately bring one more person closer to you. And so may we not miss the meaning and the reason that we gather together. And that is for you and the worship of your son, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.